Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Сегодня вступает Привет, в силу это Навальный. В Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... Годом вас. С новым веком. Владимир Путин wanted everybody to know that he was arriving. Flanked by four Russian fighter jets, the Kremlin leader completed a high-profile trip to the Middle East this week, visiting the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. And for good measure, after returning home to Moscow, Putin then hosted Iranian President Abraham Raisi in the Kremlin. Putin's frantic week of Middle East diplomacy was carefully choreographed to show that while he may be a pariah in the West after his illegal invasion of Ukraine and indictments for war crimes, he is still more than welcome elsewhere, particularly in the global South. It was also calibrated to make clear that Russia still considers itself a player in this volatile region as the Israel-Hamas war continues to rage. So what is Putin's game in the Middle East as the region's politics scramble? And what does all this mean for the ongoing war in Ukraine as Western support begins to teeter? Well, stick around because I've got just the guests to help us unpack it all. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington's historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I'd also like to add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. Welcome back to The Vertical, Jeff. Thank you. So, so there's a lot of ground to cover here. Cool. And I just thought I'd set the table with uh, a bit of context. So so indulge me in a bit of a wind-up here. Um, before October 7th, and partially, uh, particularly before the invasion of Ukraine, Russia seemed to be trying to carve out a role in the Middle East as the power everybody could talk to. And who would talk to anybody? They could talk to the Iranians, and they could talk to the Saudis. They could talk to the Israelis, and they could talk to Hamas. They also had, of course, carved out a de facto fiefdom client state in Syria. Putin had also invested a lot in Russia's relationship with Israel, or perhaps more accurately, in his personal relationship with Bibi Netanyahu. And the relationship with Israel reportedly began to suffer following Russia's invasion of Ukraine due to Putin's use of over-the-top Nazi rhetoric and his borderline anti-Semitic remarks re regarding President Volodymyr Zelensky, neither of which went over well in Israel. And with Russia's response to October 7th, Putin appears ready to either sacrifice or at least test and severely risk his long-cultivated relations with Israel. In a recent article, our mutual friend James Scher compared this to how Putin sacrificed his relationship with Germany following the relationship with Ukraine. Jeff, that's the context, as I see it, going into Putin's Middle East diplomacy show this week. A couple things to know. Putin's visit to the UAE, of course, took place not far from the COP28 UN Climate Summit, a clear attempt to troll Western leaders. Putin was also clearly on a mission to push up oil prices, something I'm sure we'll discuss. And finally, I found it interesting that Putin met with the Iranian president right after meeting with the Saudi crown prince. So... After that long-winded wind-up from me, Jeff, what do you see 
How do you see Russia's role in the region changing since February 24th, 2022 and October 7th of this year? And what was Putin trying to accomplish this week? Yeah, so that's a lot. Um, I think you're right that Russia was positioning itself as a player, as a balancer uh, in the Middle East um, in the years really since its invasion of Syria uh, in 2015. So it established a military toehold uh, in Syria, um, also um, in Libya, and, and was aspiring to gain uh, access to other mm -hmm. places uh, around the region for its military and, and security services. Um, there are energy deals that it was doing uh, in a number of countries in the region, um, including uh, Iran, and was, as you said, um, you know, trying to position itself both as a player that could talk to everyone, unlike the United States, but also as a more reliable partner for authoritarian states. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of this goes back to the Arab Spring. And you remember that um, the United States uh, at one point stepped in and, and sort of gave a push to, um, especially to Hosni Mubarak uh, in Egypt, who'd been a longtime uh, US ally. And that step in the Obama administration's more general approach to the Arab Spring um, did not go over well in, in a lot of the region, especially with authoritarian leaders, especially in Egypt when uh, the military came back to power under uh, General uh, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. So Russia kind of uh, took advantage of its involvement in Syria to pitch itself as a regional uh, balancer in a country that if you would work with it and respond to its interests, that it would be a reliable partner for um, these authoritarian leaders. And the intervention in Syria really um, cemented that. Uh, despite all the international opprobrium, despite the costs, uh, Russia stood by Bashar al-Assad. Uh, despite all the atrocities, despite the, the international condemnation that came. And that, even though a lot of countries in the region didn't like Assad, and, and especially at the beginning were uh, hoping that he would leave, um, that proposition that Russia would be a reliable bulwark for these authoritarian regimes um, was appealing. Uh, not that they sought to replace the United States. This wasn't the Cold War. And I think leaders in Egypt and Saudi Arabia and UAE and, and elsewhere recognized that Russia was never going to be able to replace the United States. But it was another player. It was another um, actor that they could turn to for weapon sales or uh, security support from um, the Wagner Group, uh, diplomatic backing for their priorities, you know, whatever it was going to be. Um, and, th and that was useful. Um, the war in Ukraine complicated that mission, uh, one, because Russia had a lot less bandwidth to spare for the Middle East and other regions uh, as it was being drawn uh, further into the morass in Ukraine, um, but also because now um, countries in the Middle East and elsewhere uh, were being put on the spot. They uh, were uh, facing pressure from the US and its allies to turn their backs on Russia. Uh, to impose sanctions, to um, to take other kinds of, of steps. Um, now, the effectiveness of this U.S. push was was pretty limited. 
Um, in fact, you had a lot of countries in the Middle East kind of taking advantage of, of the situation in Ukraine and the fact that you had both Moscow and Washington kind of seeking their favor um, as an opportunity to play the two sides off of each other and to um, to carve out more diplomatic space for themselves. Uh, we certainly saw Turkey do this. Um, we've seen Saudi Arabia and the UAE uh, do it as well. Um, now, you talked about Israel, and I think Israel is kind of a an exceptional case here for for a lot of reasons. I mean, one, it's obviously a an ally of the United States, um, but beyond that, um, because of the domestic and and regional politics, um, the Israeli public was a lot more pro Ukrainian uh, than uh, was the case in in much of the rest of the region, where you know public opinion wasn't really focused on the war. Uh, in Ukraine, or at the very least, if it was, was kind of sympathetic to, um, at, at least not antagonistic to to the Russian position. Um, you know, I, I was in the Middle East uh, this summer working on a project, and and one of the people I met with was a pollster um, who said, you know, for public opinion in these countries, which are mostly authoritarian countries, um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict plays a much bigger role than the Ukraine conflict or Russia's role in Ukraine. And that there's longstanding sympathy for Russia because of the role that it played in the Israeli-Arab conflict in the Cold War era. And the it, the, the sort of um, proclivity in a lot of these places is to see Russia as the lineal successor of the Soviet Union and to credit it for some of the things that the USSR did, even though you know today's Russia has a, a very different international profile and priorities. Um, so this wasn't a big priority uh, in the region, the, the war in Ukraine. Um, there was concern uh, about energy prices. There's concern about grain prices, which is the reason that um, Saudi Arabia and Turkey were both instrumental in the negotiations that led to the establishment of the, the grain corridor uh, to allow mm. um, Ukraine to export grain. Um in you know POW exchanges again, the Turks especially were, were prominently involved in this. Turkey has its own you know multifaceted relationship with Russia, but you know coming back to Israel, there is this much stronger public support for Ukraine. But as you said, um, there is this kind of personal uh, dynamic between Putin and Netanyahu. And you know, you said Putin was really trying to cultivate Netanyahu. I think actually it goes the other way. I think Netanyahu mm-hmm. was trying to cultivate Putin more than than the reverse. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, some of this again has to do with with providing himself ballast against pressure from the United States. Um, some of it was, I think, that uh, you know, there's a personal affinity between the two. I think right. Netanyahu saw some saw Putin as somebody who would uh, not interfere with what he was trying to do uh, domestically. And then there was the whole situation in Syria and, and the deconfliction issue, yeah. The deconfliction issue and the Israeli Syrian border. And I think Netanyahu and, and the, the government in Jerusalem was generally very worried about um, you know, problems coming across that border and saw having a good relationship with Russia as one of the key means for, you know, keeping in check whatever those problems were gonna be, you know, primarily Iran linked groups. Um and so there was this, you know, this this relationship. But I think what changed is that, you know, despite all of that, uh, Israel is an ally of the United States. And I think at the end of the day, um, 
if push comes to shove, Israel's always going to line up more with the United States than with Russia or any other country that, you know, is, is at odds with the United States. And for Russia and, and for Putin, the war in Ukraine has taken on an increasingly almost existential yeah. meaning. I think it's existential probably for Putin. It's not existential for Russia. Um, but I don't think Putin himself sees a difference between right. between Putin and Russia. Um, and so everything, sort of all the totality of Russian foreign policy increasingly gets filtered through the prism of not just the war in Ukraine, but this broader global competition with the United mm -hmm. States. And so because Israel is aligned with the United States, um, it's less uh, important, less reliable, uh, less of a partner uh, that Russia wants to rely on. There's another dynamic here, too, which is uh, the Russia-Iran relationship. Um, because, you know, Russia and Iran have been fighting on the same side in Syria since 2015. Um, their interests are not identical. You know, indeed, Russia allowed the Israelis to carry out these strikes on Iranian targets. Um, they didn't want the IRGC to be the the key player in, in Damascus any more than the Israelis did. Um, but again, because Russian foreign policy has now come to be oriented almost entirely around the war in Ukraine and the, and the global competition with the West, that as that whole dynamic has has taken a bit of a uh, a back seat, and Russia has turned to Iran more and more for support for its war effort in Ukraine, um, because you know if sanctions uh, limits on the Russian um, defense industry. You know, where is Russia going to go to uh, replenish the stocks of, of weaponry that it's depleted in Ukraine and to get capabilities that it's not good at producing itself, like, say, drones? Well, Iran uh, and North Korea and other, you know, pariah states. So Iran's become an instrumental partner for Russia in its war in Ukraine. Uh, it's provided the Shaheds, the, the suicide drones that Russia's used to target critical infrastructure in Ukraine. Um, there have been Iranian trainers uh, actually killed on the battlefield in, in Crimea, uh, where they were, you know, assisting Russian operators in, in training on these, on these drones. Um, and as a result of this, you know, if Russia was long the dominant partner in this relationship with, with Iran, I think the war in Ukraine has kind of turned that on its head and Russia has become more and more dependent on Iranian support, um, which means that it has become more inclined to support Iran's uh, strategic objectives and to give Iran capabilities that, all else being equal, I don't think it would be comfortable giving to Iran, things like uh, advanced fighter jets, uh, potentially ballistic missile technology, and, and other kinds of capabilities. So if Iran's priority is the conflict with Israel, um, and Russia is increasingly dependent on Iran because of the Iranian support for what it's doing in Ukraine, then I think the Kremlin made the calculation at some point that um, if it had to uh, sacrifice to some degree its relationship with Jerusalem uh, in order to secure and, and maintain this axis with Iran, um, especially given Israel's role as a as an ally of the United States, it was prepared to do that. Yeah, it's it's there's an interesting sorting going on right 
No, I mean, like I, I referenced an article by our, our, our mutual friend, James Scher, in, in my windup there um, that he published for uh, the International Center for Defense and Security in Tallinn a few, uh, about a month or so back. He was on the podcast yeah. to discuss it. But he makes an interesting kind of parallel where, the as you said, Jeff, the Ukraine war has become so central and so existential for Putin that everything else can be sacrificed. And he draws the parallel between how Putin sacrificed the relationship with Germany, um, which is really the anchor of Russia's relations with Europe at that point on the altar of the Ukraine war. And he's doing something very similar with um, with Israel. He's he's no longer trying to be the honest broker in the Middle East, because, I mean, the fact that 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 Putin had relations with Israel and Iran and Saudi Arabia and Hamas gave Russia this kind of this this I'm I'm reluctant to use the adjective honest to anything describing Putin, but honest broker with honest and like big, big, big scare quotes. Um, But he seems to now have thrown in all in with the other side or are we getting ahead of our yeah, I, I I think we may be getting a little bit ahead of our skis, but not a ton. Um, and I think the the situation with Germany is is more black and white um, because the invasion of Ukraine, you know, really came as a shock uh, in Germany. And you know, okay, let's bracket off the Alternativa for Deutschland, which you know right. may actually be the the biggest player in German politics next year, but. Leaving them aside, you know, across the the German political spectrum, there is this intense backlash uh, against the Russian invasion of Ukraine and this concerted effort to sort of unwind the uh, dependencies and the, and the relationships with Russia that had been built up since even before the end of the Cold War. I don't think we're quite at that stage in the relationship with Israel yet, um, in part because I don't think that Israel necessarily sees Russia as the protagonist in this story, uh, or rather the antagonist in this story. Um, that's of course Hamas and Iran, um, and Russia's playing a sort of facilitating role, uh, or at the very least turning a blind eye to, to, uh, Hamas and, and Iranian, uh, activities. But I don't think Russia has completely thrown in the towel uh, on the relationship with Israel, you know, there's been some talk about Russia trying to broker a ceasefire, which, I mean, you know, again, big scare quotes around here, but the fact that they're, you know, making the attempt and that, you know, it, it, it took Putin about 10 days after the Hamas attack to actually call Netanyahu, right. but he did finally call him. Um, so I think that, you know, Russia is tilting in this conflict, but I don't think it's completely you know, thrown in, uh, with one side, at least not yet. Do you see, and this is something we've, we've been in various discussions, both of us off mic on this topic is Russia's role in the region now stronger or weaker than it was before October 7th. Hmm. Well, I mean, my instinct says weaker, but, but I, I, I'm, 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 I'm willing to be convinced the other way. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that it actually has made a huge difference as far as mm-hmm. Russia's concerned. I think because of the war in Ukraine, Russia's role in the region has been diminished. Um, and again, the need to kind of throw everything that it's got uh, into the into the mix against Ukraine has left Russia with fewer resources, less bandwidth, 
um, for its activities in the Middle East. Um, I think Russia... a growing dependence on Iran actually and, yeah, should limit their, yeah, their latitude that, there. That, that's right. Um, especially because, um, you know, even if Putin can talk to both Saudi Arabia and Iran, um, there's not a lot of love lost in, in the Saudi-Iranian relationship. There's still a lot of concern around the region about the expansion of Iranian influence. Um, you know, one of the things that we've seen in, in the last several days has been um, escalation of attacks by the Houthis uh, in Yemen against uh, shipping in the Red Sea. Now, the Houthis have a complicated genealogy, but they've become increasingly tied to Iran and have been supplied with uh, Iranian weapons and are acting sort of in support of Iranian strategic objectives right now. Um, and because of their role in Yemen, where Saudi Arabia and the UAE are also involved on the other side, like they're hostile. And I think that Saudi Arabia and the, and the UAE, you know, see Iran's role in the Yemen conflict as problematic. Um, they would like, the, the, there was some discussion before October 7th about, you know, possibly finding a way to get all of the foreign forces out of Yemen. Uh, I don't know where that stands right now, but it doesn't seem like it's anybody's priority. Um, but, you know, the, the Houthis carried out a, an attack on the airport in Abu Dhabi uh, last year. So there's real concern about um, Iranian capabilities, even as there has been this kind of wary, um, rapprochement is the wrong word, but sort of wary engagement between especially Riyadh and, and Tehran with, you know, the, the Chinese actually brokering the contact. Right. Um, so I don't think that the, the concern about Iran has diminished. And if anything, it, it's probably grown. And I think there's a real concern around the region now that, you know, the conflict between Israel and Hamas could spread. Um, it would draw in Iranian proxies, you know, not just in Yemen, but in Lebanon and Iraq um, and elsewhere. And that that would be really, you know, problematic. Now, you know, in that case, would Riyadh and Abu Dhabi and, and some of the other players, you know, turn to Russia to try and get the Russians to put pressure on Tehran? Maybe. Um, but would the Russians actually be able to do that? I, I'm not so sure. Yeah, no. And this kind of brings us to like, what do you think Putin was trying to accomplish in this 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 whirlwind of of, of diplomacy? Um, the visit to the UAE, the visit to Saudi Arabia, and then the meeting in the Kremlin um, with the Iranian president because there's a lot there as you noted jeff there's a lot of balls in the air yeah um we had the the u.s brokered israeli saudi rapprochement that didn't really get off the ground you had the chinese brokered iranian saudi rapprochement that 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 that, that never got off the ground and you got putin kind of trying to meet with all and well not the israeli side but all the other sides in this in, in this situation, what, what was that was this purpose of this trip just to show that he could travel or <laughs> did he have really concrete deliverables he wanted to take away and we haven't talked about energy yet but we'll get to that yeah i it's probably a little of both i mean the, the statements that came out of uh, of the visits with um Mohammed bin Salman and um, Mohammed bin Zaihan were, you know, pretty sparse. There wasn't a lot of, of yeah, substance. It was pretty there. thin. The readouts are pretty damn thin. Yeah. You know, they talked about it expanding trade and, you know, especially with the UAE, trade has really shot up in the last, since the start of the war in Ukraine, um, in part because, 
well, one, because you had a lot of Russians and Russian money making their way to the UAE, but also because um, of, you know, workarounds to to get around sanctions, you know, goods being sort of exported to the UAE and then re-exported to Russia. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think probably to discuss developments um, in Gaza um, and kind of get perspective of of these leaders on, on what's going on there. Um, you know, in the, in the meeting with Raisi, they talked about uh, transport and there's, you know, been a big push to develop transport corridors connecting Russia and Iran that would, you know, operate, uh, that would be overland and therefore, you know, hard to uh, target by, with sanctions. Um, so I think that's, you know, part of this too. And as you said, for Putin to show that he's not isolated and that even leaders of countries that are in a lot of ways closely aligned with the U.S. that have security relationships with the U.S., like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, um, are still going to welcome Putin and, and still talk to him uh, with a lot of pump, I should say. Right. Now, I mean, looming over, over all of this is oil. Putin is trying to make sure OPEC Plus uh, cuts production to keep oil prices up because that is his lifeline. It appears he had some limited success. No, I mean, that's, it seems to me that was the biggest deliverable he could possibly mm -hmm. take away from this. Now, that's not nearly as sexy as all these other things going on, like the Cold War between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran and, and the Israel-Hamas war. But I, it, it seemed to me, and just reading, looking at the readouts, that seemed to be the biggest deliverable Putin was interested in, no? Yeah, and, and this has been a source of tension, you know, because for a long time, the Russians have been pushing um, for, um, uh, the, the, the Russians and the Saudis in particular haven't been on the same page when it comes to um, production cuts. You know, the Russians have been wanting to keep production high because it's the main way for them to, um, you know, continue raking in money uh, over the course of the war. Even um, though it drives down prices. Well, prices and volume, you know, there's sort right. of a trade-off. Um, so when there was a push, you know, earlier this year, last year to by the Saudis to to cut production, um, to to raise prices, the, they got a lot of pushback from the Russians for doing this. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, getting getting them on the same page about you know, OPEC plus and, and where they want the oil price to be is, is, is pretty important too. And that's another area where, you know, again, the Russians now may feel that they, um, are not in a strong a position and, 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 or, you know, might actually benefit from, from higher prices, right. especially if Saudi Arabia is the one that's taking the, the, the brunt of the cuts, you know, if Saudi right. Arabia cuts production and prices go up, but Russia doesn't cut production. That's sort of the, then they get the, the best of both worlds. Yeah. That's, that's the, optimal outcome for Moscow. Now, the other the other thing I did want to drill into here is Russia and the Saudi Iranian rivalry slash Cold War, whatever you want to call it. I mean, this this in many ways is one of the defining features of the region, right? The conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Here we have Russia like trying to play both sides here. Now, they are very dependent on on Iran because of the war in Ukraine. What do you, what's Putin trying to accomplish with the, what do you see him trying to accomplish with the, the Iranians and the Saudis? I mean, he, he's, he can't really be an honest broker there given his dependence on Iran. Uh, he, I don't think he can be an honest broker, but 
I don't think that's necessarily what he's trying to do. Um, I think he's, you know, talking to both of them, you know, probably talking in parallel. Um, and again, I think it's notable that it was Beijing rather than Moscow that actually, you know, got the, you know, kind of limited Saudi Iranian rapprochement off the ground. Um, because I think, you know, one, they had that leverage and two, I think they were seen, um, as being more of an honest broker because they don't have military assets in the region. They're not, you know, kind of playing regional geopolitics in the same way. Um, but you know, Putin can talk to, to both sides. I think there's a perception in a lot of the region that, um, you know, the Russians are more rational, uh, than the Iranians and that, you know, you, if you're concerned about developments in Syria, let's say, um, you know, it, it, you can actually talk to the Russians and they'll react and respond in, in productive ways and, and maybe can push the Iranians a little bit. Now, that's probably less true now than it was a couple of years ago, but I think that, you know, dynamic is, is still there. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's in a lot of ways, I, I think the Russia's kind of talking in parallel rather than, you know, trying to bridge, uh, right. Right. So they're trying to keep both relationships active and calibrating each relationship to their needs rather than trying to be a kind of a, a player in that they're kind of leaving, going to leave that to China, I guess, in terms of, of, of playing broker between those two. Although I don't see any, I, I I'm, I'm skeptical of that cold war being resolved. Any, any, yeah, well, soon. yeah, especially now, you know, I think part of the reason that the Hamas attack happened when it did was to derail the, the U S backed, uh, Israeli Saudi normalization. Yes. Um, but, it's not just that normalization that the war in Gaza has put on ice, but yeah, I, I think, um, you know, given the concern about the role of Iranian proxies in this fight and the potential for spillover, um, it's going to be a lot harder now for the Saudis and the Iranians or, you know, the Emiratis and the Iranians or whoever to, um, to get on the same page. I mean, I can't help but wonder looking at Russia's activities in the region, are, are they being too clever by half? Are they spreading themselves too thin where they're trying to be all things to all people? And it's, um, I'm, I, I it's, it's, it's hard to get a grip on. And the other thing is this, this region is not a top priority. As you noted, this is right. everything feeds into the war in Ukraine, which we're going to jump into in the, in, in, in the, in, in the second half before I do that, I just, and this is a question I've been kind of pondering. I mean, is the, is the Russian Israeli relationship history now, or is, does Putin, can, can, can Putin kind of salvage this relationship? Does he have a post Netanyahu plan? Cause there's no guarantee that Netanyahu is going to survive this, this, this war. Yeah. This I, I don't know. And, you know, again, as, as we were discussing before, Netanyahu has put a lot of capital into his relationship mm. with Putin, um, which makes him a little bit unique in the Israeli political space. Um, there was that brief period last year where Netanyahu wasn't prime minister for a couple months. Right. Um, and that period, you know, coincided with a kind of mini crisis in, in relations between Jerusalem and Moscow. Um, you know, this was when um, Yair Lapid, who was the, the foreign minister in that government, right. um, talked about uh, Russian war crimes in Ukraine. 
Right. And then all of a sudden there is an investigation launched into the Jewish agency in Russia, which is like a quasi-governmental Israeli right. organization that, you know, facilitates uh, um, immigration of, of foreign Jews. Um, so, you know, that, that relationship got a lot tenser during the period when Netanyahu was out of power. Now, when Netanyahu came back, I think there is the assumption that it was going to kind of go back to the way that things were before, but that wasn't really the case. And I think Netanyahu continued to try and, you know, put a stake on his relationship with Putin after the point of, of diminishing returns. So if and when Netanyahu goes, and I think you're right that his his days in power are numbered given the the massive failures of okay. that led to the um the Hamas attack on, on October seventh, whatever comes or whoever comes after Netanyahu is is, is going to be a lot less um, inclined to to want to cultivate that relationship than, than Netanyahu was. Now, you were in Israel in the summer, as you said, and I have been hearing reports that kind of Russia's rhetoric about Nazis in Ukraine and his borderline anti-Semitic comments about Zelensky did not go over well with the Israeli elite. Um, now, I've been hearing reports of that. You were in Israel. How did you, did you pick up on any of that? Yeah, no, that, that, that did not go over well. Um, but, you know, interestingly, Putin actually called Netanyahu to apologize over that. Mm -hmm. It's something that Putin almost never does. Right. Um, so, yeah, I'm shocked it, it, in his vocabulary, but <laughs> yeah. And it was particularly he was particularly Lavrov, the foreign minister, who made some of these remarks. And then, you know, Netanyahu um, criticized them very loudly. And then at one point, Putin called and, and apologized. And you know, we haven't seen kind of that same level of, of anti-Semitic rhetoric um, since. Now, you know, for Russia, I think anti-Semitism is kind of instrumental um, yes. under the current government, right? In in a lot of ways, you know. Putin is, is probably the least anti-Semitic president that Russia's had, which yeah. is a very, very low bar. It's a low uh, bar, and it's probably the only nice thing you could say about Putin, but it's with a with, with a lot of qualifications, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's necessarily for, you know, deep philosophical or, or moral reasons. It's instrumental. Uh, yeah, it's instrumental, and I think that, you know, what we saw with the criticism of, of Zelensky was um, that you know, the, the Putin and the, and the people around him were sort of testing that out. They were, you know, we're seeing if this was a, a line of, of attack that was going to be beneficial. And, and the very sharp Israeli response may have affected their cost benefit calculation around it. But that doesn't mean that they're not going to go back to that well at some point. Yeah, no, it's something they will they will they will dial up um, when they when they when they when they need to. But one other thing I noticed about there were reports that Kadyrov was um, on this trip as well. Did you pick up anything along those lines? I I didn't drill deep into it, but I I saw reports that Kadyrov was there, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts on what that might be all about. Yeah, I I saw something on Twitter about it, but I didn't really you know follow that thread either. It's um, I mean, it's also you know, Kadyrov showing that he can travel as well. But it was it was just a well, an interesting little aside to the so whole. So it, it, it's also it's that, but it's also, you know, Russia. I think in about two thousand five, became a member of, of what was then the Organization of the Islamic Conference. It's now the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, I think. Um, and 
Putin has used Kadyrov for a long time as kind of an interlocutor with the Muslim world. Now, you know, Kadyrov is, is nobody's idea of a good Muslim, <laughs> but, um, you know, he is a very prominent, um, in what they would call in Russia, culturally Muslim um, right. political figure who, you know, may be the second most powerful person in the country after Putin. Um, and having him as a, a spokesperson and a as somebody to show the flag in, in Muslim countries and, and in the context of organizations like the OIC, I think is part of the, the Russian strategy too, right? I think Russia's tries to appeal to Muslim countries in part on the basis of, you know, having this shared element to their identity um, and, you know, trying to um, sort of play it again, it's instrumental, trying to play it up in ways right. where it, it can be beneficial. Right. Well, that's a good way to segue. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and take a closer look at how the upheaval in the Middle East and Russia's war against Ukraine intersect and what that may mean going forward. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Critical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arnold McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington's historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is the one and only Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, how imperial legacies shape international security. I'd also like to add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical, and now you can follow us on Blue Sky and Threads at Power Vertical. So in many ways, the Israeli-Hamas war is a gift to Putin. It's dividing and polarizing Western societies. It's distracting global attention and resources away from Russia's war in Ukraine. What is not to like for Putin? And this welcome distraction comes as Western support for Ukraine is teetering, as was evidenced by this week's vote in the Senate. Jeff, what are your top line thoughts on both the intersection of these two wars and the wobbly support for Ukraine in the U.S. and the West writ large right now? You're right that the war in, in Gaza benefits Russia's campaign in Ukraine. Uh, because it does draw Western attention and potentially Western resources um, away, leaving aside the question of the vote and the Senate and the and the sort of domestic politics of this issue right now, there's a limited amount of bandwidth, a limited amount of equipment um, that Western countries have available, and if there's uh, if it comes down to it and and there's a trade-off is 
U.S. going to send X capability to Ukraine or to Israel, my guess is they're going to send it to Israel. Um, one, because Israel's an ally, and two, because there is broader bipartisan support uh, for um, for supporting Israel. So, you know, in that sense, I think, you know, having this big blow up in the Middle East um, benefits uh, Russia. I think it also helps uh, take some of the focus off of the uh, atrocities that Russia's committed uh, in Ukraine and the sort of humanitarian aspect of of that conflict. I think you know Russia has every incentive to play up uh, the suffering in Gaza and then you know blaming the Israelis for you know this that and the next thing. Um, one because it kind of you know obscures their own uh, responsibility for uh, violence against civilians in in Ukraine, but also because it just it, it shifts the narrative. Um, the more attention there is on the Middle East, uh, the less attention there is on uh, Ukraine. Um, and again, if the U.S. is pushing for its Middle Eastern allies to do more uh, on Ukraine, and frankly, the U.S.'s Middle Eastern allies have have not done a huge amount for Ukraine. Right. Uh, with a couple of exceptions, including um, Israel, by the way, know, <laughs> for, for reasons we can talk about, but that whole dynamic becomes more complicated now, um, because now these countries are going to be putting pressure on the United States to rein in the Israelis and to you know push for some kind of an, an end to the conflict in Gaza. So there's a lot of, of diplomatic upside uh, for the Russians. And then, you know, you get to this question of, of political support uh, in the United States. And it's been clear for a while that uh, political support uh, for continuing to uh, send assistance to Ukraine was, was softening. Uh, you know, if you looked at opinion polls for the last several months, you can see a yeah, it's a slight downward trend, but there's a, a an emerging, it's really already emerged, partisan divide um, on this issue, and I think it's being fueled by um, you know particular voices uh, on the right, um, and you know now um, the war in in Gaza gives new ammunition to those voices, or that's a mixed metaphor if I ever heard one. Um, <laughs> It, it gives new um, resonance to those voices um, who can argue either one, Israel should be a higher priority, um, or two, that why is the U.S. getting itself involved in all of these wars in the first place? And shouldn't we, you know, come back and focus on uh, getting things in, in order in our own house? Uh, so, yeah, what's, what, what's not to like if, if you're sitting in the Kremlin? And if you look at these two conflicts and what they're doing to the U.S. body politic, I mean, I kind of look at the Ukraine war as something that unites Democrats and divides Republicans. And you look at the Israel-Hamas war and it does the opposite. It unites Republicans and divides Democrats, um, which kind of creates this um, this almost intractable situation politically right now. President Biden tried to bridge that gap by linking aid to mm -hmm. Ukraine and Israel. That didn't work. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it, it's now Putin is smiling about this. And then there's another aspect of this um, that the Israel Hamas war plays right into Putin's attempt to rebrand himself as the champion of the global south, the 
uh, I can't say it with a straight face, the anti-colonial <laughs> champion. Um, right. But but it, but nevertheless, it is uh, it is working. What is true and what you can market are are two entirely different things. But this is just another way that this kind of plays into Putin's hands. Which um, again, this uh, uh, the, the 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 minute this war started, I said this is this is not going to be good for Ukraine. And I think mm-hmm. that my my, my fear. Yeah. Out. Any thoughts on all that? Yeah, uh, on the domestic front, I think there's another pillar to this, which of course is is the the migration issue and, and the southern border, because I think that's really where the focus of the Republicans is right now. And I think that a lot of the congressional Republicans believe that because Ukraine is such a high priority for the administration, they can use it as a way to um extract concessions around yeah, the southern border. yeah so i think it, it, it's more about that than it is about the you know the the link between ukraine and, and israel um is there going to be some deal worked out eventually to to get this through i guess would be yes but it's not going to be quick and it, it, it at this yeah. point it sounds like Congress is not going to come back to to work on this before the end of the year. So we're looking at, at sometime, you know, in, in January, um, which is not great. But I still think that there's pretty united Democratic support for Ukraine. And I think there's enough support for Ukraine on the Republican side that if some of these other unrelated issues can be um, resolved, that they'll be able to to get a package through yeah i mean there's i see three factions in the republican party on this i see one the kind of mitch mcconnell's of the world that are all for aid to ukraine they're basically there's not a lot of daylight between them and the democrats on this issue and then there are those republicans that want to leverage this as you suggested to get what they want on the southern border and then there are those that let's face it don't want to support ukraine um they yeah. like basically yeah. there is that faction in the republican party there is. as well and if you, it depends the, the politics of this are going to be tricky for, for yeah. go, going forward i think you're right i think it's going to happen but it's going to take some time yeah and you don't need all three of those factions to sign on no right? you you need the democrats and you need some percentage of of the republicans yeah. that you can presumably get from the first two factions right it's just That's... getting to a place where enough of the people especially in that second faction that you talked about are going to be comfortable going along with it now the israel thing complicates it on the democratic side because you have fact you know you have the 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 the, the left wing of the democratic party doesn't want to give israel any support so it, it's it, it it gets the politics get tricky on the left side when you bring when you bring israel into it so that that's that, yeah. that's i mean we saw bernie sanders not you know, voting against the aid package because of mm-hmm. israel not because of ukraine yeah i, I think on the I think it, it, again, in in a lot of ways, it, it's not an exact parallel the the ways in which the two parties are sorting themselves, because th- there's a couple of, of real outliers in the Democratic Party, but a very small number. Mm-hmm. But I think on, on the left, the sort of more center left, or no, look, let me let me come up with a better word. Um, I think on the more internationalist left side let's say Mm -hmm. so you know people like sanders it's not that they're opposed to providing aid for israel it's that they want to condition it right um so you know again i I think there's probably a universe in which they can be placated 
Um, and I think actually the, the longer the, the conflict in Gaza goes on, the more pressure there's going to be from that flank of the Democratic Party to not stop Israel, but at least to impose some conditions on it and to try and rein in some of the, um, you know, more egregious attacks on civilian targets. Yeah, the, the, the majorities are there. It's just getting them to the floor for a vote and, and, and getting getting it past yeah. all the procedural votes. The, the right. majorities at the end of the day are there for, for, for both. Both, yeah. Uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about was the, uh, before we wrap it up, is the Ukrainian relationship with Israel. I mean, it was it was hard not to notice Netanyahu's frosty treatment of Zelensky following Zelensky's expressions of support. Uh, and on the surface, this seems odd. Zelensky is, 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 is Jewish and one of the only Jewish heads of state in the world outside of Israel. Yeah, there, um, there are two Jewish heads of state in the world, Netanyahu yeah. and Zelensky. Right, right. So like, um, but how do you understand the Israeli-Ukrainian uh, relationship right now? Because it's it's more complicated than you would think it would be. Yeah. Well, again, I think a lot of it comes back to this almost single-minded pursuit by Netanyahu of, of uh, maintaining his relationship with Putin, um, which was a big part of the reason that the Israeli government was continually resisting U.S. calls to provide military support for Ukraine. Right. Um, now, you know, the, the other argument they made was that, you know, we might need this stuff closer to home. We, we can't really spare it. And given what's going on now, I think there's probably some some truth to that. Um, but I, I think, you know, before October 7th, the real uh, biggest reason why um, Jerusalem was was reluctant and really just drew a line uh, at sending lethal military assistance was because of the desire not to pick a fight with the Russians that, you know, now they're in a place where uh, whether they pick a fight with the Russians or not is almost uh, immaterial. So I think that's part of it. And I think that that approach has long been a source of frustration in Kyiv. Uh, at one point, uh, the Ukrainians asked that Israel be excluded from the Rammstein group which is coordinating um, weapons deliveries. Um, they were worried about Russian intelligence penetration uh, of that group via Israel. Um, so there's there's a kind of, there's not a great dynamic between Kiev and Jerusalem. Um, and it is a little ironic given one, you know, as you said, uh, the only two Jewish heads of state in the world, but also um, because there is pretty strong public support in, in Israel for Ukraine. Yeah. And I think since October 7th, probably and in Ukraine for Israel. Yeah. So it's, it's a little counterintuitive. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it, 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 it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very puzzling. We are bumping up against the end here, Jeff, anything you want to add? There's a, I mean, we kind of covered a lot here and I was trying to put some structure and context and framework around it. Um, basically riffing off of Putin's trip to the Middle East, but there's been, this has been a topic I've been wanting to cover for a while. Anything, anything you want to add before we wrap it up? Russia, well, you talked about the global South and that's not a great term. It's it's kind of 
imprecise. You know, we used to have the third world, which we used to replace what we used to call the third world. Yeah. yeah. And I think for some of the same reasons, global South is not a great term. And part of that is because if you're using it as a proxy for income levels, let's say, um, there are places in the Middle East that uh, are doing quite well and have rather high um, uh, per capita GDPs, you know, places like the UAE uh, or Qatar. Um, but that's part of the reason that Russia is interested in these places. Um, there is a huge amount of, of Russian money, especially in the UAE, especially in Dubai. Um, and since the uh, start of the war in Ukraine and the imposition of, of Western sanctions, vast amounts of, of Russian money have made their way into uh, especially Dubai, but some of the other Emirates as well. Um, a lot of Russians uh, who've left the country have bought property there. Uh, you know, if you walk around the streets in Dubai, like you're going to hear Russian spoken probably more than you're going to hear any other language. Um, so that, you know, connection is, is very much there. Uh, bilateral trade between the UAE and Russia jumped by almost two thirds last year. Uh, and it's growing this year again. This was one of the things that, that was in the readout between um, Putin. So it's, I think Russia's trying to adopt a more global profile. You know, for so long, the front line of the Russian strategic rivalry with the West, you know, ran through Central and Eastern Europe. Right. Um, since 2015 and, and the invasion of Syria, um, it has expanded and, and and morphed, and I think we see uh, Russia planting the flag in a lot of different places now. Um, and some of these in the classic global South, it's through things like the late and, and not really lamented Wagner Group, um, which has been very active in, in parts of the Middle East, in Syria, uh, in Libya, uh, elsewhere. Um, but also, you know, through these economic and, and trade relationships and, and the presence of, of Russians uh, who are seeking to not get drafted, uh, who are seeking to buy property and move money that, in ways that's not going to get sanctioned. Uh, and that's part of the, the fabric of this relationship, too. And it's also part of the reason that countries like the UAE have taken a rather hands-off approach to the to the war in Ukraine. There's too much money for them at stake, and they don't want to get caught up in this sort of tit-for-tat battle between Washington and Moscow. All right. So you see Moscow playing both angles of the global south, the wealthier global south, like the like the Gulf states and um and and the other parts of the global south where this kind of anti-colonialism narrative um take takes hold. Oh, that's a that's a good place to wrap it up. That's all we have time for today as I'm watching the clock closely. I'd like to remind you you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood has been Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published and must-read book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I would also like to add that Jeff's views are his own and do not reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. Jeff, thanks for an enlightening discussion and making us all a whole lot smarter. 
Yeah, of, of course. Thanks for having me. I thought it was a Thanks. really good discussion. Yeah, I thought it was a great discussion. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and working water throughout our discussion. And Zachary Bell handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on the platform formerly known as the Twitter at Power Vertical. And now you can follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team.